Well, Father, we love, love you. Thank you, um, Lord, always for the fellowship that we have together. And uh, Lord, just thinking of the season, um, it's not a good season for a lot of people. Um, just growing up in really bad circumstances, a lot of alcohol and drugs and abuse and, and isolation, loneliness, Lord. And so, Lord, I'm really thankful that we have our church family and uh, mutual love. And I just pray that what we have here would become just a beacon of hope to our community, especially to those that are so desperate and lost. And Lord, we also pray for, for Bob and, and his bride, Lord. Just be with them. And um, Lord, we pray for an opening at a, a clinic, Lord, that could take Bob and just get this procedure done with and get him home for the holidays. And uh, so just be with them. Grant them peace, we pray. And Lord, we continue to pray for Judy and uh, that you just love on her in Joe's absence. Encourage her heart. And Lord, surround her with your people. So Lord, we love you. Thank you, Lord. Pray also that uh, tonight, uh, our time in your word, that uh, it wouldn't just be a history lesson, but the example of Israel. Lord, we can learn a lot of what not to do. And so teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. No yawning, Nana. I'm just getting started here. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, last Thursday, we started in uh, a series of, we could say, five woes. Uh, five chapters begin with a woe, uh, beginning with chapter 28, and it just moves forward from there. Um, all of the chapters but one uh, share the same theme. Four of the woes are concerning the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem, but then all of them end with uh, the future restoration of Judah. Uh, the last of the woes concerns Judah's enemy, who in the immediate context is Assyria, uh, for which there's no hope of redemption. And uh, we're going to get to see all of the Assyrian stuff because the uh, Isaiah's prophecy turns into a narrative. And so we get to return to the actual story, historical event of the invasion of Assyria and what happens to them. It's a great story. Um, now, so far in the book of Isaiah, we've already seen um, uh, 14 woes. And, and prophecy uh, typically has a lot of woes in it because when the prophets spoke, it wasn't always about good stuff. And so it's filled with woes. But there's been 14 woes prior to chapter 28. Nearly all of them concern Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, but as Isaiah began in chapter 1 and 2, his prophecies concern who? Judah and Jerusalem. And then it has to do with their relationship with the surrounding nations. But because of God's unconditional promise to Israel, uh, they're going to be redeemed. But woe to her enemies... For unto Abraham was the promise that I will curse those who curse you. God won't break his promise. It still is sustained. And um, eventually every nation that messes with Israel, harasses them as a curse to them. Uh, things do not go well for them. Okay. The fifth woe uh, is both a woe to the enemy of Israel. And that's a brief part of the prophecy. And then it moves into this plea uh, for God's grace, which comes across kind of like a song. Some commentators have said that they believe that it turned into a liturgy later on. 
um, I, I, I don't even know how they can know how that happened because there's no documents anywhere uh, that would say that. But some of them believe it. Uh, I think it's written more like a song uh, than a liturgy. Uh, but anyway, now in regard to this whole thing with Israel, because of course they've been the primary subject since chapter one, uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, there's the discussion of discipline, there's the discussion of restoration. And this, of course, is this cycle that we talked a little bit about last week, uh, this cycle that um, Israel essentially has willfully subjected herself to. Uh, we looked at it back in the book of Judges, uh, and there it initially occurred over the course of about 300 years, the time of the Judges, 300 years. But in Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, you've been rebellious since I met you. That's, and it just has never ended. And the cycle that we saw is uh, in the book of Judges, Israel sinned, and then God delivered them over to their enemies by whom they were oppressed. And then, of course, they cried out to the Lord, and he delivered them. Uh, but the cycle uh, that started in the book of Judges has really never come to an end for Israel. It's just happened over a course of even greater time. Okay? It seemed like every 40 years or 30 years or 20 years it happened in um, the book of Judges. But after that period, it was just stretched out further. Uh, over a, a longer period of time. So relatively speaking, uh, Israel will be uh, mildly judged by Assyria, even though it was, it was bad, and then they'll enjoy uh, a reprieve until they're judged more harshly by Babylon, after which they'll rest from judgment for about 450 years until 70 AD, when God uses Rome to initiate Israel's punishment for the rejection of his son, but their judgment has not ceased since that time. Okay, So Jesus and Paul say that Israel will remain under divine chastisement until they call upon the name of, the, of Christ. Once they do that, then they'll be fully and finally redeemed. But uh, it has and it appears to be that it's going to continue to be a long time before then. Uh, because as we've talked about, Israel, uh, the majority of all Jews today are secular. And now you find in Israel all kinds of earth religions, and it's a mess. So who would have thought that Gaia would be popular in uh, the Holy Land? Very interesting. Yeah. So this evening, uh, as we continue on with this theme, uh, I want to survey the four chapters rather than drowning you in the redundancy of, this, uh, of Israel's rebellion and future restoration. So we're going to look at the primary complaint in each of the woes, and then we'll talk about those. So the primary complaint against Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 29 is this. <coughs> and you'll recognize it. Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Have you seen, heard that before? Minus the word fear. It's an old term. It's an old term for uh, religion. Where, do we, where have we seen that before? 
Come on, you Bible scholars. You're all in serious trouble. Jesus, when he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's condemning them in Matthew 15, he said, hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? And, and then he quoted the passage right here from Isaiah. You don't remember? Now you do. Matthew 15, you go find the exact address, and uh, we'll talk about it later. So drawing near with their mouths and honoring him with their lips was a way of saying the right things to God, uh, giving the right answers, but having no works to prove it. Uh, we find this with children all the time in Sunday school. They always give the right answer, right? Uh, I find this all the time in, in, uh, when, when people are caught doing the wrong thing and they're confronted and then you address them about it and they give you all the right answers, but you know that they don't intend at all to follow through with what is right. Amen? Yeah, we were all teenagers and we know. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Loving God with all of their heart uh, was not a thing. Uh, they would express verbal love for God, but have no real love for him. And the things that they were actually doing in service to, to God were not things that were prescribed in God's word, but were things that were taught to them by men, probably at that time by a false prophet, okay? uh, potentially a wayward priest. <clears throat> Whatever they were doing, it was unbiblical. Uh, there was lip service, but no real devotion. And uh, both uh, at the time of Isaiah and during the time of Christ, there was essentially a, a false worship and there was this religious activity <clears throat> that could not be found in the Bible. It was the traditions of men. And remember, Jesus, what had happened in the context, maybe it'll help you find it, is the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why do your disciples violate the traditions of the fathers? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus says, why do you violate the commandment of God by your traditions? And then he gives them a real-life example of something they're doing that is actually in violation of the law of God, but it's in keeping with their traditions. And the tradition actually, what it was, is there was this law of God that was really inconvenient. <clears throat> so what they did, <clears throat> they created this way to circumnavigate the law so that somebody could keep their money. And it was money withheld from parents who were in desperate need. And then uh, Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah. And uh, he really digs it in there. Well done. So on God's part, you know, it was like receiving a package that had proper labeling. But when he opened it up, it's the wrong package. It's or the wrong product. Uh, <clears throat> wasn't what was ordered. So Judah's worship and devotion was this facade expressed in words, but it was not out of love for God. And it wasn't according to his word. Okay. But this is the thing. And... It's not just Israel that needed to learn this. This is true of modern Christianity today. Uh, both the worship of God and the doctrines of God are prescribed by God, never by man. Otherwise, uh, everything or some of the things we do is man-made, right? Uh, the temptation is always there, not just for the Jews then, but for us today. We want to assign uh, for ourselves the way that we want to worship and the things that we want to believe. How convenient would that be? And we do this all the time. It's because we're carnal. Uh, we want the way we worship to suit our taste 
We want it to be our thing, uh, as if worship was about us, and uh, not something specifically prescribed by God in his word and for his glory. Because we're carnal, we tend to ignore uh, any doctrine that doesn't sit right with us or is socially uncomfortable for us. How many, I mean, if you read, <clears throat> you're the best. If you read through, let's say, uh, uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, of course, you're not old covenant people, but how many of those laws, regulations, and things did they read that didn't sit well with them? And how many of those do you look at today as a new covenant person and you go, that one doesn't sit well with me? Well, how about when we get into the new covenant? Are there any directives from Christ that you don't really appreciate? There shouldn't be, but we're made of this garbage called flesh. And so we see those things and we try to figure out how to avoid it. How do we circumnavigate? How do we, how do we get away with doing something different? And if, if we don't want to just flat out uh, disobey, we would like to diminish um, you know, the charge. We would like to make it... Uh, not as strong, make it more benign. And um, yeah, um, if you have been keeping up with the major denominations in America, uh, you know that it's not just individuals that struggle with this, it's entire groups. And I, what I do is I try to keep up with what is called the General Conference of Denominations. How many of you guys have been a part of a denomination and they have a, a general assembly, a general conference, um, and it's there that the assembly comes together and they vote on theology, of all things. And they vote on uh, practice and leadership and so forth. <clears throat> and what that does is it steers the course of the next year for the denomination. At least that's how it appears. But every decision made every year by the denomination affects, has the potential to affect generations. And so once they... You know, most denominations start off with, you know, very, they have a target that they're going for. And, uh, but every year they, they scoot just slightly off. And uh, so uh, in 2016, I was, I was reading the general conference of a major denomination. I'm not sure if I should say yet, but when I read their, their, their new definition of biblical inspiration, I thought, hmm, that's going to have consequences. And now the graduates from their institutions have that view, and then they're teaching it from their pulpits. Uh, and it's, it's an abhorrent view of Scripture. The view is, uh, they don't call it this, but when you read it, it it's, it's a definition of it, and it's, and it's partial inspiration. And you hear language like, the Bible only contains the Word of God, but it's not the Word of God. Or uh, um, the... Uh, um, not everything in the Bible is the word of God. Uh, but then the question is, who's the arbitrator that gets to decide which is and which is not? And what is very interesting about this is, do you guys remember the Jesus seminar? The Jesus seminar? So it was a bunch of famous people, actors, and all of that. And they, they got together and made this committee. And they looked at all of the words of Christ, and they decided what was genuine and what was spurious. And then they published their work as if it was legitimate. And, uh, but they were the ones that got to decide what, what their Jesus would actually say and what he would not say. And uh, one of the things they, 
maintained that he said in order to underwrite their organization was it's better to give than to receive. So I always appreciate that. But anyway, this extremely liberal group known as the Jesus Seminar, which everybody condemned and hated, and and, I mean all the denominations of Western culture, now are doing the exact same thing as the Jesus Seminar. It's despicable. And uh, it's crazy. Yep. Yeah. Worship cannot be about us and honor God. And the doctrines of God uh, are not for us to take or leave or invent on our way. Uh, Everywhere in Scripture, uh, worship is theologically sound and it's doxologically driven. Uh, That is, the worship of God is always according to what is uh, true according to God's self-disclosure of himself and, um, and everything is for God's glory. Yeah. You know, I'm not certain that the worship uh, prescribed in Leviticus, you know, with all of its sacrifices and blood and guts, washings and, and rituals was what appealed to the worshiper of the day. I mean, what if you had uh, a priest who passed out when he saw blood uh, or the smell of guts made him heave. I mean, I don't think that all of that stuff was really the ideal form of worship to the worshiper, but it is what God prescribed. And then you have the story of Aaron's sons who brought a foreign or strange offering into the tabernacle. And what happened? Leviticus 10. God killed them because worship was to be pure and not debased. It wasn't to be contaminated. He prescribed what he wanted And that was all that he wanted there. Yeah. And then whenever Israel strayed from the clear instruction of God's word into their practice of living, um, of course, that led to disobedience and then to Israel being judged. So, you know, the faith, uh, faith and practice, it's not up uh, for debate, really. Uh, I know that we have varying interpretations, but we do all of that with you know, in, our, in trying to be genuine and sincere because we have a desire to love God and to follow him. But man, we get so far off as we dismantle the faith in these days. Yeah, true of every individual, uh, true of every denomination. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And he's saying that really that the love of God is demonstrated by obedience. And of course, nobody obeys perfectly but Christ. In reference to this whole thing, I think that churches have felt that they're sort of impervious. They're, they're not subject to this kind of judgment. Only Israel is subject to that kind of judgment. That's contrary to Romans 11, which, which Paul says, be careful lest you also be broken off. But Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4 through 5, he says, I have this against you. He complimented a little, a little bit because they were, you know, they're very orthodox and, and uh, they were getting down on the heretics. But he says, I have this against you that you've left your first love. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. I have this against you, you've, you've left your first love. Speaking of that, that love for Jesus, that simple, just intimate thing. He says, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove your lampstand. Too many have been removed and are no more. I do not think that he considers 
the major denominations in America as anything at all anymore. I think he's completely removed their lampstand. It's, it's nuts. And like them, uh, they're not going to lose their lesson, learn their lesson. Israel did not at that time. So let's move to chapter 30 where God's greatest indictment against them was the object of their trust, which was not him. He says, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt, and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So out of their fear of Assyria, and then through their wicked rebellion, the leaders of Jerusalem decided to, or rather not to seek the Lord for help, but to look to the Egyptians for deliverance. Now, in the scriptures, uh, there's only one time when going to Egypt is a good thing, and that's when Jesus fled from Herod. Okay, other than that, going back to Egypt is, is not good. Okay, this is bad. So they forsook the sovereign God for a false hope. Uh, why did they do that? Why do we do this? You see, Judah knew that if they were to seek after God for his deliverance, part of that would be him pointing them back to the law, his word for obedience, which they're unwilling to do. So they know that if they, if they go to God and say, God, deliver us from Assyria, what's he going to do? I would love to, but there's conditions. It's called repentance. And repentance looks like obedience. They just weren't willing to do that. So, yeah, it clearly comes out here in, in, in verse 9 through 11. It says, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, uh, deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Just get Yahweh away from us. If you're not going to prophesy the things that we want to hear, it's crazy. They would be happy to have God deliver them from Syria, Assyria, but they weren't about to submit to his demands. They would love to continue on with their lifestyle, okay? And, and they would love to gladly receive any good thing from God's hand, but they would have nothing to do with his law, nothing to do with his prophets. So they say, away with the Lord, cause him to cease from before us. That is really strange. As if the prophets can make God cease. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're guilty of the same. You know, married couples do this all the time when they're having marital troubles. They do this exact same thing. Uh, single people, they, they play this game with God when they're living in unrepentance. Uh, churches do this all the time after they've compromised and are suffering for it. We want out of the mess we're in, uh, the mess that we've, we've caused, but in order to be relieved of it, we must humble ourselves, confess our sin, and repent by uh, returning to God's word and obeying its instruction. Uh, that's the only way to move out of this, this, um, this self-inflicted wound. You know, in, in marriage, the disobedient wife must confess that you know, she's not submitted herself respectfully to her husband and followed his lead with a quiet and gentle spirit, as Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 7 command, the disobedient husband must uh, confess that he has not, by the grace of God, been loving his wife as Christ loved the church. 
He hasn't been understanding of her, uh, nor has he cherished her as the weaker vessel, just as Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 7 command. The single person must flee sexual immorality, make no provision for the flesh, and he must fellowship with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart, submitting themselves to the leadership of the church, just as 2 Timothy 2.22 and Romans 13.14 command. And the church that has compromised needs to confess their sins, and if the leadership will not repent and get back on track, the people need to remove the leadership or leave the church and plant something new, uh, just as a multitude of scriptures would insist. <laughs> in fact, I, I think I addressed this a couple of Sundays ago, that what you see in so many churches is that they're lenient toward the sins of the leadership, but they're harsh toward the sins of the laity. They have the, the Bible completely backwards on this issue, and that it should be the other way around. And uh, we can get off base so fast. But what we must do is repent. We must align ourselves with the instruction of God's word. Otherwise, we will uh, face God's discipline. And God's discipline, by the way, is a grace. Amen? It's grace. He could leave us as we are, but that would be an unloving, irresponsible parent, right? It would be neglect. But he brings his hand of discipline because he loves us. He loves us. Judah, for their disobedience and unbelief, they suffered God's judgment. Assyria came, and the Egyptians who they trusted in so much got whipped by the Assyrians, and then they laid Judah to waste. And when they were done, of course, they came and they surrounded Jerusalem. Uh, But because God had made a promise that they would not enter Jerusalem, uh, they did not. They were turned away. Uh, And I want to save all those fun details when we get to Isaiah 36. But that whole thing where Assyria got so close because of Judah's disobedience, it was meant as a wake-up call, a wake-up call. But they went right back to their old, their old ways. Yeah, crazy stuff. Chapter 31, God's complaint against Judah is similar to that of chapter 30, but slightly different. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Now, Egypt did. They had superior military machines, uh, many chariots, strong horsemen, all of which the natural man looks to, right, with great confidence. But sometimes the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Amen? Yeah. But the confidence of Israel or of Judah actually went beyond what is normal. Uh, They were looking to Egypt as one would look to a god. So God says, listen, now the Egyptians are men and they're not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. That is an interesting way of saying all that. So the implication is that Judah was trusting in Egypt and its ability like they would put their trust in a deity. Yeah. And they did this not because they were, or because they viewed Egypt as a god, but probably because they were depending on the gods of Egypt to use the Egyptian army to deliver them from the Assyrians. You see, you understand, superstition is wrapped up in everything that the ancient people did. There was always a god involved. Uh, There's always a god to deliver, a god to judge. And so they've rejected their own god, and now they're looking to another nation that is governed by a multitude of gods, 
and their God of war, they're looking to, they're depending upon him to use his army to secure Judah's safety. They wanted their gods to be working in their favor instead of the God of Israel who had all the rules. You know what I'm saying? You know, Israel was a lot like little children. Uh, You know, one, two, three-year-olds. Oftentimes you'll see them reach for another parent or a grandparent, and it's typically the one with less, what? Rules. That's right. So Israel is, they're doing that. They're reaching out for somebody, a deity, or a pantheon of deities that just have less rules, okay? Who will save them. It's crazy. We do this. If we can't have God's blessing because we refuse to meet his demands, we look elsewhere to satisfy our needs. And sometimes we look to things or do things that are dangerous. You know, it's not uncommon for people who don't get their way with God to just reject him or say they don't believe in him as if it makes him go away or somehow affects his existence. It's not uncommon for people to be struggling emotionally because of some sin in their lives or because of a lifestyle that they've embraced and, and, and don't want to forsake. And instead of repenting and obeying God's word, they turn to pharmaceuticals. And so when I meet with people that have emotional problems and all this other stuff, and, and they may need help elsewhere, but I always ask a few questions. And, and then it, it comes out very frequently that, well, they're, they're living in an, in an immoral lifestyle. And then they're feeling guilty because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in order to get relief, they don't want to repent. They don't want to dissolve the relationship or relationships. They want to maintain all that and feel good about it. And uh, they want a pharmaceutical uh, or they want another, uh, another drug of some kind. Just, but, but they do not want to repent. People can turn to just about anything for relief before they'll turn to the Lord who alone can provide the real relief that they need. We're a very strange species. Yeah. We act just like two-year-olds. Yeah. But even though Judah did all of this against the Lord, God in his graciousness delivered Jerusalem from total destruction. It's interesting here that only three verses in this chapter are committed to rebuking Judah and prescribing her judgment. And the rest of it is all deliverance. It's all deliverance. Very interesting. And sadly, just as quickly as God defeated the Assyrians, Judah forgets and goes right back into the sins that they were committing before. Amazing. Okay, after chapter 31, uh, the woes are interrupted by a promised hope of a righteous government that will rule over Israel. He says, behold... A king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now, the fulfillment of this is difficult to find apart from something that's distant future. And I would say it's difficult to find a fulfillment apart from Messiah's earthly kingdom where others rule and reign alongside of him, okay? Uh, There really is no righteous king with princes who form a righteous government like this after Isaiah and before the Babylonian invasion. If there had been, Israel would not have gone into captivity, okay? And after the Jews returned from uh, the Babylonian captivity, a monarchy 
was never reestablished. There were no kings in Israel after Babylon. There were prophets like Zechariah and uh, Malachi. There were priests like Ezra. There were governors like Zerubbabel, but there were no kings, none. There were many prophecies about a king. There was many prophecies about a kingdom, uh, but neither came about after Babylon. And for that reason and others, the disciples asked Jesus if, if he would at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, Acts 1. And, and they asked that question because of prophecies like Amos 9, 11 through 15, where God promised that he would rebuild the house of David as in former days and would replant the captives of his people in the land of Israel so they would never again be pulled up from the land that he gave them. See, reestablishing the throne of David as in the former days and then replanting Israel back in the land and never be t- to never be displanted. Those are all eschatological things, right? And so it's on the mind of people. And then you have a prophecy like this that looks to a future fulfillment. So what is prophesied here has not been fulfilled, and therefore we must look to a distant future when Christ accomplishes both the king and the kingdom. Let's look at the final woe. All right. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. So the final woe in the series is not to Israel, it's to her enemy, the plunderer, the one who has dealt treacherously with her. Who is that? What's that? Assyria. Yeah, it's Assyria, who God was originally using Assyria as the instrument of his wrath. But then as God has already said previously, he'll say it again, that Assyria, in executing God's judgment against the nations, they became, they went overboard. They became extremely cruel, uh, and their cruelty was just more than he could handle. And so Assyria went from being the instrument of God's wrath to the object of God's wrath. So as soon as their uh, plundering, treachery, and pillaging came to an end, Assyria came to an end. I mean, God dealt with them in one of the most interesting and miraculous ways uh, as he ever did with an empire. And uh, it's quite amazing how they just came to nothing and then were kind of dissolved into the Babylonian empire and became nothing. So that's quickly set aside. And the rest of the chapter is this plea for God's help. But in the end because it does have eschatological implications, not every Israelite is going to be saved, as uh, some dispensationalists assume. Okay? I'm not a dispensationalist. I don't think that every Jew, by virtue of being a Jew, uh, will they be saved. But here in the chapter, it says only the faithful will be delivered. This question is asked and then answered, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Now, the problem is I can't read that uh, without thinking of Mormonism. So when I, of course, you know, I grew up around all that garbage. My dad took me to the Mormon church, secretly baptized me in the Mormon church. And then uh, when I got saved, I then was meeting with 
Mormon missionaries all the time and studying all kinds of Mormon theology and all of this stuff. And this statement with everlasting burnings is all throughout their theology. And anyway, I don't know why I can't. It, it's burned in here and I can't get it out. The heresies and all that. So who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. The promise of salvation to ethnic Israel is to those who are faithful. Okay? So in the end times, I know uh, Romans uh, 11 by dispensationalists is interpreted as every last Jew uh, no, it's all the Jews who come to faith at that time uh, will be saved, okay? Just as the text here says, it will be those who are faithful and all of that. So Israel goes through this cycle. It, it started out like this, and then it went like this, and then it went even longer, and then now we're in this last stretch of Israel's rebellion but we have the promise again and again and again through Isaiah. They will be recovered, but now we finally have this statement that says only the faithful, only the righteous will be recovered. Amen? All right. Who's coming Saturday? Who's coming Sunday? All right. I'm preaching Saturday, and Mike Strobach is preaching Sunday. And we're doing something in tandem, right? Okay. All right. I thought you assigned me my homework. Okay. All right. Okay. Why don't you stand up? And we'll pray. Well, Lord, we pray that we would not be like Israel, a wayward people, rebellious and highly privileged. As Paul says, what benefit is it to be a Jew, to be circumcised? He says, much in every way. For to them, we're given the covenants, the fathers, the, the promises, so many things. And Lord, we, in the new covenant, we have great great privileges, as Ephesians chapter 1 just details out for us. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, help us to walk worthy of this wonderful privilege, this great salvation, as Hebrews says, that we have. Uh, help us not to enter into this cycle um, and remain in it, but Lord, help us to be a people of repentance and faithfulness. And um, yeah, so just teach us, instruct us. Lord, fill us with your spirit and energize us for righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.